So turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. The title for this message is One Greater Than Satan. Last week we had One Greater Than the Storm. This week we have One Greater Than Satan. And we're going to read together from verse 1 of chapter 5 through to the end of verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled familiar story, isn't it? We need his grace to understand it, so let's pray. Lord, we are in need of your eyes today. We need of your Holy Spirit to open our eyes so that we can behold the wonders of this story. Lord, this story that has been deliberately placed here by Mark to teach us something. Well, Lord, would we have eyes to see? Would we have ears to hear this morning? Would we all leave affected by your word? Have your way amongst us, Jesus. Amen. You know, when I first became a pastor um, back in the year 2001, I was first a youth pastor, and I loved that. I was only 25 then, so I could relate a bit more. And now I feel like really old. And you say to you, oh, have you heard this piece of music? And you think, I've never heard of the band, let alone the piece of music. You know, I've never heard of these things but back then I was slightly more with it and I used to love being a youth pastor I used to love it in particular when we'd take them away on adventure weekends away 
we had about 80 kids. When I started, it was about 18. It became, it became bigger and bigger. And so we would, we would hire these buses and we'd go on adventure weekends away, primarily just to help the kids relate to one another, to really have a good time and relate. And I used to love going on adventure weekends away. You see, when you arrive on an adventure weekend away, particularly in Wales, the whole days would be filled with activities and would be filled with adventures. And so every time we would get on the bus, we would arrive at the venue, they'd rush us off the bus and they'd say, listen, you've got to get changed quick because we've got the first thing about to start. And so we would all run in and get changed and come out and you would start off in the morning with a low ropes course. It was in the fields and in the, in the bush like, like it is here. And we would start on this low ropes course and this low ropes course would be, it would be like... It'd be like the Tough Mudder for athletes. You know what I'm saying? It'd be like that. That's what it was like. You'd go on this ropes course and you'd just be hanging on for dear life because underneath a lot of the ropes, and with it being whales, would just be mud and water. And if you fell in, it's all over. So you'd be hanging on for dear life. You'd be trying to shake the teens off, obviously. But you'd be hanging on for dear life yourself. A few kids would drop off now and again. They'd be sent home to the showers. It'd be awesome. But you'd be hanging on for dear life and you'd finish this course eventually after about an hour and a half. And you would just be exhilarated from the moment already. Well, you'd then stop and have lunch as a group. And then very quickly after lunch, they would get you onto the assault course. And this assault course was legend. It was like built for the Marines or something. It was just absolutely great. And so we'd all be bombing over this assault course. You'd be absolutely exhausted, covered in mud, covered in water. You'd have bits of clothing half hanging off your head because it'd all be ripped because of what's been taking place. You'd then pause for dinner. And then after dinner, you would be escorted to the high ropes course. And I used to hate the high ropes course because I don't like heights and the, the giveaways in the name high ropes course. You'd have to basically shin up these, these telegraph poles about as, high as this, about as high as this ceiling here, which doesn't look too bad. But once I got to about like here, I felt like I might wet myself. You know, it's absolutely horrendous. But of course, because of the fear of man, teens are watching, you pretend that you're absolutely fine. So you just try and hang on like a koala bear and do your best to shin up and then you try and give this course a go as best you can. Well, by the time you'd go to bed that night, you wouldn't be able to sleep. You'd be absolutely exhausted, but you wouldn't be able to sleep because you'd have all this adrenaline running through your body from all that had taken place in the day. It was a great day of adventure. Well, this day for these disciples is like that day. This day for these disciples has been an incredible day of adventure. This day of adventure began in the morning with the low ropes course of the parables. Jesus exhorts them around the truth of four very clear parables and they spend the morning rallying around these parables. They would have no doubt then been excited as they heard about the importance of paying attention to what they hear. The importance of understanding that we need to be doers of the word, listeners of the word, allowing the soil of our hearts to be ready to hear the word. And they must have been exhilarated as they heard about the Lord's sovereignty in building his kingdom. That in effect they're called to scatter as his disciples, but God by his grace is the one that gives the growth. He is the grower. He is the one who ultimately is giving all the growth in the kingdom of God. Well, as if that wasn't enough, these disciples were then exhorted, brought on later that day to the assault course of the storm. The story that we heard last week, right? The parables are finished. Jesus has talked to them about the parables, explained to them about what the parables are. And the next thing you know, they're in the boats. They're going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And then one mother of a storm kicks off. 
These disciples are freaking out what's going on. They've just heard the parables in the morning. By the afternoon, they are freaking out by all that is taking place. They assume that they are going to die. And so they wake Jesus and he stands up and says, quite simply, peace, be still. And all the waters cease to a calm. You know, it says in verse 41 of that story that, and then they were afraid with great fear. They were afraid of the storm, but now they're even more afraid of Jesus. Who is this guy that does this? R.C. Sproul describes it this way. He says, what is significant about this scriptural story is that the disciples' fear increased after the threat of the storm was removed. The storm had made them afraid, but Jesus' action to still the tempest made them more afraid. In the power of Christ... They met something more frightening than they'd ever met in nature. They were in the presence of the holy. It is one thing to fall victim to the flood or to fall prey to cancer, but it is another thing to fall into the hands of the living God. At the end of the storm, that's their experience. They've spent the morning hearing from the Lord himself about parables, how he's building the kingdom and how he's sovereign over all. They've spent the afternoon on a lake going through a great storm. They think they're going to die. Now having encountered the holiness of Christ, they think they're even more likely to die. They are soaking wet. Water is dripping from their bodies. They thought they were going to die and now they are totally perplexed about who is this one that we're with? He's so powerful, even molecules of water relate to him. Everything is under his authority. Well, what you discover then as the story continues is that that evening, as Jesus gets out with this band of brothers who are his disciples, there's more to be had today. Because in this evening, we have the high ropes course of the demon-possessed man. All the same day. Imagine if you had been there. Like, Jesus, I am soaking wet. I am terrified. Who is this nutcase now running towards us? And that's what happens. They step out of the boat. And in verse 1 we read, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. It's all the same day. And yet Jesus, for the first time at the end of this day, is setting foot into Gentile territory. His ministry is going into Gentile territory, non-Jewish territory. He has arrived on the east side of the Sea of Galilee at a place called Gerasa in the country of the Gerasenes. And there, both Jesus and his disciples are met by a man that is literally dripping with demonic activity. And what we find then in verses 1 through 20 of chapter 5 is the largest and most detailed account of an exorcism in the Gospels. The largest and most detailed account of any individual being demon-possessed and then being released from those demons. And what we also have here then is one of the most dramatic scenes in the Gospels. Well, as we examine it this morning, as we study it this morning, It's my hope that we would truly comprehend what is really going on here. That we'd truly see it. We wouldn't just hear it again as a story of, oh yeah, I heard that when I was about six. We'd really comprehend what is Mark trying to show us here. We'd see the story and then in process we'd also discern what it means for us today because it does. 
It addresses each and every one of us in the room. Each and every one of us. Various points in this story we'll see ourselves in the picture. And yet often we're going to discover we're going to see ourselves in the most unusual of places and how we hadn't seen coming. So I have two points this morning. Number one, the story. I want us to examine the story as we seek to comprehend it. And then number two, what it all means as we seek to discern what this means for us today. So let's begin number one, the story. As I said before, this has been quite the day. They've arrived in the morning, they've heard parables, their mind has been expanded. In the afternoon they think they're going to die, they've been through a great storm, but now as evening comes, they land in the country of the Gerasenes, and then this demon-possessed man, this maniac, this lunatic, comes running towards them, and they're really not sure what's going to happen. They're afraid. And in verses 3 to 5, Mark explains for us more about this demon-possessed man tells us very important details about him. Let's look at it, verses 3 and 3 to 5. It says, He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, and cutting himself with stones. You know, as Mark tours us around this man, what we discover in verses 3 to 5 is that this man is desperate. And this man is in a desperate and difficult and horrible condition. James Edwards, in his commentary, says, The description of the demoniac is one of the most lamentable stories of human wretchedness in the Bible. He is a terror to himself and others. And even in life he is consigned to the land of the dead. There, wailing among the tombs, he wreaks havoc on himself day and night. And Mark's vocabulary throughout is raw and brutal. So it is. The description of this man given by Mark, which isn't given by the other gospel writers, is deliberately given to us by Mark because he wants us to understand this man's condition is desperate and horrible and difficult. See, it would appear in verse 3 that this man at first was compliant with the townspeople and allowed them to chain him up. But it also appears that the demon's power grew over this man and so by the end he was unable to be chained by the townspeople. His condition is clearly worsening and night and day then he spends time crying out and cutting himself. He's cutting himself because he wants the demon out. He's overwhelmed by all that is taking place. He screams out because he he wants it gone. He lets out howls in the night and howls in the day because he's a regular man that has been possessed by a demon and he is despairing. This man's condition is desperate and it is horrible. He resides among the tombs. He lives amongst dead people. He is in total captivity to the demons and he is totally beyond the capacity of human help. He cannot help himself and the townspeople have been unable to help him or indeed even bind him. And in verse 6 then we see this man scared and naked and bloodstained and demon-possessed, 
running to Jesus from afar and then falling down before Him at His feet. All the while, with the disciples looking on, still with clothes that are wet from the great storm that's just taken place, but now looking on at this maniac running towards them, no doubt in fear of what is going to take place. They don't know the story. D.A. Carson writes this way about this scene. He says, This was unlike anything they, meaning the disciples, had previously experienced. This was not someone sitting quietly in a synagogue until aroused by Jesus' preaching. No, the sight of this maniac must have been frightening to them. What were they thinking? Surely it crossed their minds, now what? It must have done. They're just regular guys. They're dripping wet. They get out of the boat, no doubt just grateful that they're alive. They're probably kissing the ground. That's what I'd be doing. I thought I was going to die. I'm on the sand. Oh, thank goodness. And then you get up out of the sand and you see this maniac with chains still attached to him running towards you. I mean, I'm freaking out at that point. That's what's exactly is happening here with these disciples. They are no doubt afraid. They are no doubt wondering, now what? I'll look within at verse 7. Let's discover, now what? And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. You see, these demons are very aware of who Jesus is. They're very aware, I know who you are. You're the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God. And as Mark pens this letter, then he's doing it very deliberately to help us see, you know, as disciples, we were afraid. But Jesus, he's not afraid at all. He's not afraid in any shape or form. What you discover as you go through this text is Jesus is in control of the whole thing. And even now, this man who is demon-possessed is lying prostrate before him because these demons know their place. They're encountering the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They're encountering him and his great authority. And so these demons are submitting actually to Jesus Christ as the King of all. And so in verse 9... Jesus asks, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. See, what we discover through that verse is the sheer size and strength of this demonic force. Jesus isn't dealing here with a man that has a demon. Jesus is dealing with a man who has demons in him. A Roman legion would have numbered 6,000 foot soldiers. The reason why this demon is calling himself Legion is because there would have been at least 6,000 of them in this man. That's why he's breaking chains. That's why he's so all over the place. He's the most demon-possessed man you're ever going to encounter in your life. Satan, for whatever his wisdom is, has sought it right to concentrate great demonic strength in this one man. The demons are called Legion. And yet notice the demons are lying prostrate before Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And when Jesus asks them, what is your name? They tell him straight away. 
See, what we see here and what we discover is the sheer size and strength of this demonic force. But what we also discover is the sheer size and strength of the power of Jesus Christ, don't we? They're bowing before him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And through one single sentence, these demons are expelled. All 6,000 demons in an absolute moment unquestionably are removed from this man. This man is released from all demonic oppression through a sentence. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. In verse 13, Jesus grants their request to be sent into a herd of pigs. We're not told why. So you can just try and discover lots of things. No one knows. We're not told why they explicit why he sent them into a herd of pigs, even though that was their desire. Most likely it was to show the enormous quantity of demons in this man. Most likely as well, it was to demonstrate and assure them, this man, that they had indeed gone, that these demons have left you. We're not sure exactly why, but what we are sure of is this. Jesus Christ has authority over all things, doesn't he? He has authority over nature, we just saw it in the storm. He has authority over sickness, we've seen it time and time again in in chapters 1, 2, 3 and 4. Now we discover without doubt, he without doubt has authority over demons as well. And so Jesus rebukes these demons, they leave this man, they go into the pigs and all 2,000 pigs, a great herd, go running down the steep hill and are drowned, the demons inside them. Jesus Christ is the great king of all. He's sovereign over all. And this man is sitting there all of a sudden in his right mind. He's back to the guy he was before he was possessed. He's back to normal again. And so we see then the reaction of the locals in verse 14. We read, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. See, everybody goes running off to the locals very quickly and says to them, listen, this is, this is incredible what's taking place here. But this is scary. You've got to come and have a look. That guy who we used to hear screaming out every night, the guy that we'd see running through the town at different points, all bruised and cut, he's, he's different. He's sitting down, clothed in his right mind. Something has happened to him when he's encountered this Jesus. You need to come and see what has taken place. And as a result, as this crowd turn up from the local area, they are afraid. And in verse 17 then, we encounter one, I think, of the saddest verses in the entirety of God's Word. Because in verse 17 we read, And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. He just committed one of the greatest miracles ever seen. They just saved this man. Surely you would have expected maybe a party or a revival, a celebration of all that clearly the Lord has done or a great revival as you encounter Jesus and say, what's up with this? But instead they're afraid. They're afraid of his power. They're afraid of all he is. And so instead of receiving him, they reject him. They beg him to leave. 
And in verse 18 then we see the reaction as opposed to the reaction of the crowd. The reaction of this man who has been greatly healed from the demons. We read in verse 18, As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. The local people begged Jesus to leave. But this man is begging Jesus, I, I want to come with you. Jesus, I, I'm, not, I'm not one of them. I'm not, I'm not the crowd. I don't want to reject you. I want to receive you. I want to take you for everything you are. You've, you've saved my life. You've changed my life. I want to come with you. And these 12 guys, then let me come with you. And yet the Saviour, maybe even surprisingly, says in verse 19, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. you know, perhaps surprisingly at this point, Jesus didn't permit this man to come with him. But that wasn't this man's destiny. That wasn't this man's call. This wasn't the Saviour's plans for this man. This man wasn't called to be part of the twelve. Jesus had called 12 very clearly to him, 12 Jews, 12 people that would be the 12 that would form the new Israel, the new family, the new church of Christ. This man wasn't to be one of them, but what this man was, was an individual who was sent to his own. And Jesus tells him, go tell everybody that you've ever met what I've done for you. Go tell them of the greatness of God and the mercy that God has had on you. You know, this is kind of unusual because every other time Jesus has healed somebody or rebuked a demon prior to this moment, he's told them to say nothing, hasn't he? You see, this man is in Gentile territory. There's not the same fear for this man. There's not the same concern for this man that somehow a crowd will break out and they'll misunderstand who the Messiah is and the Roman government will get prematurely involved and Jesus will go to his death too soon. It's not the same fear for this man because he's a Gentile. And so Jesus tells him, listen, they're begging me to leave and I'm going to leave. But I want you to stay and I want you to tell them. Tell them all that I've done for you. Tell them of the mercy that God has had on you. And it would appear as this story continues that this man was wonderfully effective at telling people about Jesus Because next time Jesus appears in this area again in chapter 7, we see him having to work a miracle to feed the crowds of over 4,000 people. It would appear that this young man is very effective at telling people about what Christ has done for him. And so when he discovers that Christ is in the area again, crowds are coming out to see Jesus. Why? Because they had heard from this man. (laughs) You've got to come. This man changed my life. I was filled with demons, but... No, I'm not. He saved my life. This man went from being a maniac at the start of chapter 5 to a messenger by the end. He became from a place of being prostrate before the Lord, filled with demons, to proclaiming the Lord by the end. What a dramatic transformation, don't you think? And the disciples are watching throughout. They're taking it in. The day began with parables. The day continued with a storm where they thought they were going to die and it concludes with a guy with an inner storm who they think is going to kill them. And instead Jesus saves him. 
He shows his authority over demons. shows his power over Satan. He rebukes the demons. And the disciples must have gone to bed that night unable to sleep with adrenaline running through their body. I mean, what must they have been saying to one another? I think they were probably just looking at one another going, because this is a wild day. And so what does it all mean, number two? What does it all mean? This is indeed a dramatic scene. This is the largest and most detailed account of an exorcism in the gospel. What does it mean? What does Mark want us to learn from this incredible story? Why has he written it here? And why has God breathed it out and kept it in Scripture? Why is it here? What does Mark want us to learn? Well, three things. Number one, he wants us to learn that in Jesus, the Christ, the true Son of God has come. C.J. Mahaney says it this way. He says, Mark's purpose and emphasis for this passage is not to prompt a fascination or preoccupation with the demonic. Mark is assuming the reality of the demonic and he's certainly graphically revealing the intent of the demonic in this passage. But this story isn't about the demonized man nor is it about the demons that inhabit him. No. This story is about the one who arrives on the shore with sovereign authority over the demonic and the quality of salvation he brings. Listen, in headline then, this story is all about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And so it is. In chapter 1, verse 1, Mark begins the Gospel by saying, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. He wants to help us see all the way through this Gospel, this is the Christ, the Son of God. This is the one we've been waiting for. He's the Messiah and He is God's own Son. And so all the way through this Gospel, particularly in the first half, Mark is placarding before our eyes time and time and time again, this is the Christ, the Son of God. Look at Him. He's greater than nature. Even the molecules of water obey His voice. He can still a storm in an absolute moment just with mere words and the very storm ceases and the waves stop. He's greater than sickness. Let me tell you about the time he healed a leper and he healed a paralytic and he healed a man with a withered hand. Look, he's he's greater than all these things. He's not only greater than nature, he's greater than sickness. But that's not all. He's also greater than Satan and his demons. In chapter 3, as you remember, the scribes accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed, don't they? Do you remember that? They accuse him. We figured it out. You're able to do everything you do because you're demonized. That must be what's taking place here in and through your life. And Jesus explains to them, I'm not demonized at all. I'm God. I've come to bind the strong man and in binding the strong man, I've come to set captives free. I've come to bind the strong man so that chains can be released from people and they can rise and go forth and follow thee. That's why I've come. I've come to save the oppressed. I've come to save captives. I've come to bind the strong man as I do. And it's like in chapter 5, Mark is saying, let me show you what that looks like. Let me show you what it looks like for Jesus to bind the strong man and to set captives free. Let me show you through a description what it looks like to have a man 
who is completely riddled and held captive by demons, rise and go forth and follow thee. Let me tell you about this man who was demonized by 6,000 of them. How cool is that, don't you think? He's showing us time and time and time again, Jesus is the true Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. He is God's own Son. In Jesus, the Christ, the true Son of God, has come. But that's not all. Number two, in Jesus then, hope has come to us as well. See, this is here because it has implication. So you've probably been wondering, yeah, this is awesome. Uh, I don't see myself in the picture at all. I presume I'm not Jesus. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think I'm a pig. Negative. Uh, disciple, not really, not dripping wet, not sure. They're just watching, they're not doing much. Where am I in this story? I mean, I know I'm not the demon-possessed man, right? Wrong. Because when you take a look at this story, what you realize is your situation is more like the demon-possessed man than you realize. See, prior to salvation, we're not all demonized like this man was, right? We're not all running around, cutting ourselves and screaming out with demons coming from our body. We're not, that's not our story. And yet prior to salvation, our situation is nonetheless desperate and difficult and horrendous, just like his. Because listen now in context to Ephesians 2, where Paul explains what your situation was like prior to salvation. He says, As for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. See, just like as with this man, prior to salvation, we too are residing among the tombs. Prior to salvation, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. We are stone cold dead and we live among the tombs. Just like this man, prior to salvation, we are cut off from God. We're not able to be with His people. We're not able to be with God. We're separate from Him because of our uncleanliness. And just like this man, prior to salvation, we too are beyond human help. We're unable to do anything about it just by ourselves. And no one else seems to be able to do something to us which just gives us the magic fix to be able to sort out our problem. We're more like this man than at first we care to realize. But when you realize that, yes, we are like this man, what you also realize through this story is what it means then is that hope has come to us as well. Hope has come. So, my friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, thanks for coming. You have my sincere respect that you would be here at a church hearing about Jesus when you're still not sure what you believe about Jesus. You know, this Bible is primarily one story. It begins with the story of how God made us, how he actually knitted us together. And very quickly you discover that God made us to find our identity and our joy and our hope and our trust in him. He made us for perfect and joyful intimacy with him. But what we also discover really quickly is how man rejected God. 
How they decided they weren't interested in God. They didn't want to worship God. They wanted to exchange the Creator for the created. They were quite happy with the world and we'd appreciate if you could just get out of our face. And because of that, my friends, this, this world got seriously messed up. And you have to examine this world over the last few weeks and turn on the news and you realise this world is broken. This world is seriously messed up. And the truth is, as you examine the Bible story, you realise we got seriously messed up as well. Because of our sin, we are cut off from God in our sin. He, He can't relate to us. We can't relate to Him. And in our sin, we freely follow, as Paul says, we freely follow the prince of the power of the air. We are, in effect, bondage to this world, bondage to the power and the penalty of sin. But what we discover as soon as we examine the Gospels is hope has come. Because Jesus Christ, one one greater than Satan, has come. One who came to make a way for you. One who came to break the power and the penalty of sin in your life. One who came to die in your place so that you may have life and that in abundance. One who came to bind the strong man and make it possible for the chains that you have to this world to be broken so that you may rise and go forth and follow thee. He made it possible through His death and resurrection for you to be forgiven of your sin and reconciled to the Father as it was always meant to be, redeemed back to Him, adopted into His family, not just held off, but adopted into the very family of God and into a place where you will remain all the way until you see Him face to face in the delights of heaven. He did it all. He made it possible through His life and death and resurrection and all we have to do, He tells us, He's put our faith in Him. And in that moment then we may rise and go forth and follow Thee. In that moment salvation will be ours. John 3.16 tells us, But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that anyone who believes in Him would not perish but would have eternal life. My friends, this text helps us see that hope has come. We're more like this demon-possessed man than we realised. We may not have demons. I doubt we have got demons. But we're all in bondage to this world. We all have no way of escape by ourselves. But in Jesus, hope has come. And I want to urge you then, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, put your faith in Him today and know the life that He came to give you. True life. Life and that in abundance. Because just like happens with this man, as you put your faith in him, you will come into your right mind. In a way that in reality, without him, you and I have never been. In Jesus, hope has come. But that's not all. Number three, in Jesus, we too have something to tell of. You know, upon salvation, this man's life was turned upside down. He starts the story prostrate before the Saviour. He finishes the story proclaiming Christ. He starts the story as a maniac. He finishes the story as a messenger of Christ. Because upon salvation, Jesus Christ not only calls his name, but he calls him as a disciple and then sends him. He sends him to go and tell people about me. Go tell people about all that I've done for you. Go tell people about the mercy of God himself. My friends, as Mark pens this gospel for us, in part, he pens it because he wants us to realise that as a disciple, we have been sent as well. All the way from chapter 3, 
Right early on when we have that discussion of the crowds and the called. We have the crowds rising in volume but ultimately not there to to put their faith in Jesus and the disciples as individuals who have been called. Called to what? Intimacy with Jesus and they're being sent by Jesus. It's going to be a theme that runs throughout the rest of the book because Mark is helping us to see, hey, are you not a disciple as well? And if you are, Then you call to intimacy with Jesus and to be sent by Jesus. Let me tell you about this guy who was demon-possessed and then Christ saved him. Do you know what he sent him to do? He sent him then to tell others about him. And Mark's going to get louder and louder and louder on this topic to help us realise this is us now. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? For as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Hang on. We've been sent. We're now on. The heavens are waiting. The fields are ripe for harvest. We've been sent. So my friends, I want to encourage you as we come into Christmas then, Let's go to people. Let's tell them. You know what primarily we need to be telling them? We need to be telling them the gospel. But even maybe prior to that moment, here's what we need to be telling them, just like it is for this man. Let me tell you about the day I met a man that changed my life. Can I share my testimony with you? Because I met a man who changed my life. I was, I was dead in my transgressions and sins, but now I know what it is to be forgiven and redeemed and justified and know that heaven is my home. I don't deserve it, but Christ saved me. We're called to be as witnesses. We're called to tell people about what Jesus has done for us. And so how do we apply this message? By going and telling them. My friends, this day for the disciples has been quite the day. It begins with the low ropes course of the parables. It continues with the salt course of the storm. It then concludes with the high ropes course of the demon-possessed man. It's all there for us. It's all there for us. Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of God. And through him, hope has come to our world. So now as his disciples, let's go tell people about him. Amen? We've got to go tell them. So would that be our story? Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your word, and as we gather around this most unexpected application, as we see our own condition is just like this demon-possessed man. Lord, would that humble us? Would it make us freshly grateful? And would it make us freshly passionate about wanting to tell other people about what you've done for us? Lord, would we not just sit on the sideline this Christmas hoping that people might come to things randomly, but would we passionately and enthusiastic like this man go and tell everybody we've ever met about you and about what you've done in our lives? Lord, would we be a people that introduce people to you, that brandish the gospel, that hold the gospel, that are so affected by our love for you and all that you've done for us that we cannot help but tell people about you. 
And as we do, Lord, would you be with us? Would you strengthen us? And would we stand and move forward as people amazed by your grace? Because you've done it all, Lord. And you always will. Amen.